Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 952. You've got to be true to yourself and you have to be absolutely consistent and you have to be very honest with yourself and also try and strive for everything that you can possibly achieve. Do not try and overachieve because, you know, it only happens to very few people. But if you achieve half of what you really wanted, you'll probably find you, you had a pretty happy life. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am a revved up and so excited to introduce today's a very special guest, a gentleman with a vast history in the racing world, David Hobbs. Hey, David, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? <laughs> well, I'm buckled up and I'm ready for whatever comes. All right, here we go. David Hobbs was born in Lymington Spa, England and started racing in 1959 at the wheel of his mother's a daily driver. A 1952 Morris Oxford. Brave lady, your mother. <laughs> in 1960, he raced his dad's Jaguar XK140 and then a Lotus Elite where he started winning races in his long and successful career. He's raced in 20 24-hour Le Mans events, ran the first Daytona 3-hour, which of course became the 24-hour, USRRC, Watkins Glen 6-hour, IMSA Trans Am, the Masters Championship, the Winston Cup Series, the Indianapolis 500, Bathurst 1000, and he raced in Formula One debuting in 1966 in Syracuse, Sicily. David raced a wide variety of marks, including cars like Lola, Jaguar, Lotus, and Ford GT40s. His television career, of course, is an, as an on-air commentator began in 1976. To present, he's covered races for CBS, ESPN, NBC, Speed Vision, the Speed Channel, in addition to a wide variety of racing venues, and most recently, being the F1 host with past Cars Yeah guest, Lee Diffie. So, David, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about your very long and successful career. Would you take a brief moment to share a little bit more about that career, your passion for automobiles and racing? Well, Mark, you seem to have covered it all pretty well there, actually. <laughs> uh, to hear you speak, it sounded a lot more illustrious than it really was. Yeah, I did race for a long time. I raced for 30 years, and then I've been on the TV now for 41 years. Wow. Um, wow. And as you say, I did, in my day, you know, everybody sort of drove everything. Now everybody specializes, like a Formula One driver now, basically only ever drives Formula One. Mm-hmm. IndyCar guys stick to any NASCAR guys, definitely stick to NASCAR. And um, it's become much more specialized. But of course, in my days, the money was so much less that you kind of had to drive anything possibly get your hands on because you'd only get like, you know, maybe anywhere from two to maybe a thousand dollars a drive. So sure. to make a living, you had to drive a lot of races. And yeah. um, that's one of the reasons why I had such a wide ranging career in terms of type of car, because yeah. you just had to race anything that was good, anything that was available. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of fun. I mean, you've been having fun for so long, and I've enjoyed watching you on television for so many years, and we're going to continue on this automotive journey of your life here. But first, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has a great meaning for you. And it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires smoking here on cars. Yeah. So, David, take the wheel. Well, 
I'm not very good at inspirational thoughts and talking, I must say. Um, obviously, the, the, the thing for a driver, any young driver, and, and the whole parameters have changed on that now. It used to be that if you were good uh, and you made some sort of a name for yourself, people would ask you to drive their cars, and you would, and they would pay you for it. Now, unfortunately, um, you have to pay, and that does rather change one's uh, goals and attempted goals but whatever you're trying to do, whether it be on TV or be a race driver or, or be a history teacher, the, the one thing you've got to do is remain dedicated to your task. And um, you've got to be relentless. You've got to just keep push, push, push at every opportunity you can. Other than that, there's not much you can do in life because life has a way of gripping you by the uh, hairs on the back of your head and steering you where it wants you to go rather than you steering it. Yeah. You know, I love the way you put that. I think it's really important that you define your goals and go after them. And, you know, after your racing career, you got into television and broadcasting with some other drivers did that as well. But my goodness, you stayed with it for a long time. So you must have really enjoyed it. I did. I um, Because when I started doing TV, I still raced for another 14 years. I started in TV in 76 and I didn't my last race was effectively in like 1993 which was the uh, Fast Masters down in Indianapolis which Terry Lingner put on as a TV production really which was a good event but my last real professional race was 1990 mm-hmm. uh, when I drove when I drove a Porsche 962 at Dijon Ooh. in France oh. part of the world championship for sports cars and um, so I you know I'd already been doing the TV then you know, for what, 14 years. Yeah. Um, and I stayed on doing the TV, which was, uh, which was really good, very lucky for me. Um, and I was lucky in my TV career, I have to say, um, because I managed to hang on when other people got dropped. Um, and my career in TV, as you said, <laughs> I have in fact worked for all major networks, plus ESPN, um, and plus NBC, SN, and of course Speed Vision <laughs> turned into Speed Channel, then turned into Speed, and has now gone. So I was very lucky in my TV career that I survived many management changes, which a lot of people didn't. TV is very, it's not objective at all. And um, the TV management, they change, they'll very often be, because they don't like them. Yeah, And I was extremely lucky through my career that every time there was a management change, I managed to hang on somehow. So, but, of course, the last change that's just taking place now, you know, NBC having lost the rights to Formula 1 right. to ESPN. Right. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to survive that one because the way ESPN are going to do it, uh, they don't need anybody from here. They don't need anybody to do a show because they're not going to do any shows. They're just going to take live feed from from the races sure they don't need people here yeah well it's really a shame because i really enjoyed watching you three guys on that show following f1 but i think a big part of it for me at least is following your career is the credibility that you brought to your announcing because a lot of times you they'll bring people on to shows and they don't have a racing history and you can tell pretty quick when they really don't know what they're talking about they may be great at hosting but they don't understand the history of racing and that's what you always brought to it for me so i really appreciate what you've done over all these years you've done a fantastic job and 
uh, will be missed on the F1 circuit for sure. But no doubt, uh, we'll see you again somewhere. I think you're one of those guys that just keeps coming back like the Energizer Bunny. You just keep keeps, on ticking. Keeps popping up like <laughs> keeps popping up like proverbial bad penny. Well, I um, yeah, I think my day you know might be really run now because uh, you know racing on TV is um, it's changing. Uh, everybody wants to do it themselves. The uh, franchising bodies want to do it themselves. Um, they're dropping the networks to a certain extent. Um, that makes it difficult, and of course, you're basically left with IndyCar. Formula One and NASCAR. Right. Obviously, you know, I mean, I did, I did a lot of NASCAR. Of course, I did 17 Daytona 500s for CBS. Absolutely. And I had done three years before NASCAR with, with them. And, um, so I did quite a bit of NASCAR, but I'm not really a NASCAR voice. I'm not the sort of voice that a NASCAR viewer wants to hear, you know. Sure. Um, they want to hear someone like Darrell Waltrip, um, who obviously is excellent at his job. Yes. Um, and one of the better guys out there. And um, as you said at the beginning in your intro, so many sportsmen, uh, to my mind, the absolute best TV announcer on a sport is John McEnroe. Um, he is uncanny. Um, <laughs> yes. The way he can read a tennis match while it's, you know, that shot's going to put him in the back foot, blah, blah. And he, and he gets it right practically every time. Yeah, and he is really terrific and, and a great personality because he was a tremendous personality when he was playing, a bit of a brat, but it certainly paid <laughs> off and made him famous. Yes, uh, and of course he won nine Grand Slams, so he's certainly no slouch on the all-time list. Oh yeah, um, and there are you know, but few other sportsmen I think have, have done as, as well as I don't think they do as well as he does. Um, of course, there are a million football players who've taken to the broadcast booth. Um, and most of them do a terrific job. And there are a few drivers, not that many. Martin Brundle, of course, does the Sky in Britain. Mm -hmm. And he is terrific as well. He's very good and very, very popular in Britain. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously I have, must have remained fairly popular over here. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed in the business for 41 years. Wow. Any announcers, you know, pretty long career for a TV guy. Yes, yes. For somebody that went in, somebody that started life as a college student and wanted to be in TV, even for someone like that, 41 years is a pretty long career. For somebody who just sort of stumbled into it, <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess it's a very long career. Well, I think it's all that endurance driving that you did, that racing you did got you used yeah. to longevity and just that stick-to-itness that you've got. Well, let's <laughs> yeah. go back in time. I want you to think way, way back here and think about the first really special car in your life. Now, this could be the first really special race car you got into to race, or maybe it was a street car, but some vehicle that had a great meaning for you way back when. What was that car? Well, it would have to be the Lotus Elite, really, which I raced. I have never had any road cars worth talking about. I mean, I don't have any. I don't have a collection. I don't own any cars. In a lot of ways, I'm not really a car man. I'm not one of these guys that looks at a 1957 whatever Corvette or and says, oh, yeah, well, the 58, because you can tell it's not a 58 because the the fender flare has that little turn up at the end and all that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't get that at all. Um, but I mean, the elite, I mean, I'd race my mum's Morris Oxford, which is hardly a classic. Then I raced my dad's XK140, which was a beautiful car. So I turned it over and then, um, I raced the elite and that was what really put me on the map. The loads elite. Um, it had dad's automatic transmission 
which I used the manual override on, of course, but it didn't have a clutch pedal. So it was probably the first real two-pedal racer, and that was in, back in 1961. And we won. We, we decided to do a, a foreign event, and we left the shores of Britain um, on the ferry, and we went to Germany and took part in the Nürburgring 1,000-kilometer race, and we won our class in that race. Wow. Uh, using dad's automatic. So that went down. That was my first real big win. So that was, um, so that car and that win, you know, meant a lot to me. Oh, well, no doubt. And the Elite, what a beautiful little gem of a car. I've had the pleasure of driving a street version of that yeah. car, and it's just like a little jewel. You're almost afraid to grip the steering wheel too hard because everything is just so <laughs> delicate and light. But so wonderful. Well, but what's cool is you ran an automatic transmission in some of these cars with a manual override. Tell me why you went down that path. Well, I went down that path because it was the only way I could do it because Dad supplied the car ah. and, and it had the automatic in it. And so, I mean, the the Jag and the Morris, my mum's car and the Morris and the Jag were kind of, that's when I started racing and everybody thought at the time, including me, that this is just, uh, you know, indulging myself in a bit of a whim. But then um, Dad's uh, company, he sold some shares in the company and had some cash. And they decided the best way to advertise this unit might, in fact, be to race um, properly. Mm -hmm. So we, we set up a little race team in Dad's small company uh, with the elite. And, um, and we had a lot of wins. We had 14 wins out of 18 starts in 1961. Oh, my gosh. So it really put the gearbox really gear on the map. Yeah. Um, and showed that, um, and Jimmy Clark, um, Jimmy Clark liked it so much. Well, what happened was at the end of 61, Colin Chapman, who owned and ran Lotus, was, of course, the genius behind Lotus and, of course, a genius designer and engineer, you know, in the, in the mold of somebody like an Adrian Newey today. Right. Colin Chapman designed some of the greatest Formula One cars ever, mm, yes. including the one, of course, in which Mario Andretti won the world championship. But um, at the end of 61, he called us up and said, look, can we borrow your car, your elite, for Jimmy Clark to drive in that inaugural three-hour race at Daytona? He said, I think I'd like to see how that automatic works. Wow. And, um, and Jimmy Clark drove in the race, and I drove an E-Type in that race. My car dropped out pretty early on out of fuel pump, uh, fuel pump issue. And Jimmy went on and was leading the class by miles. And um, unfortunately, when he came in for his one and only pit stop to put fuel in it, um, the bloody thing wouldn't restart. Oh, no. <laughs> he didn't finish. Yeah. But he was so impressed with the gearbox that he had his own personal road-going Lotus Elite fitted with it. And so did Sterling Moss, who at that time was recognized as probably the world's greatest Formula One driver. Wow. Uh, he never won the world championship, but he was still recognized as an outstanding driver. And he used the load elite on the street, as did Jimmy, and they both had uh, Hobbs transmissions fitted to their cars. How cool. Um, of course, Jimmy did a lot of long-distance driving because he lived up in Scotland, and he used to drive down to you know, where Lotus Factory was in Chesson, which is just outside London. Mm-hmm. And he would drive down there, um, up and down to Scotland in his Lotus, and he just loved the gearbox. So, yeah. And um, finally, Dad's company went broke in the end of 1963, just a year and a half later. And 
dad had already made, Colin Chapman was so convinced that automatic would be the way to go in in Formula One mm-hmm. that we that when the company went belly up, um, one of the things left on the shop floor was a Formula One gearbox that Dad had designed for Colin Chapman, a five-speed automatic for Formula One. Oh wow! Uh, unfortunately, because it never saw the light of day, but it was there, ready to go. Wow! Um, and Colin, you know, as being an outstanding designer, had realised that you know automatic gearbox or at least uh, semi-automatic, would, would be a very, very good way to go. Sure. Wow. Yeah. What so, a, well, yeah. what a fascinating story. I, You know, I have a, a, a very great fondness for Lotus because the first race car I ever drove was a 1960 Lotus 18 in vintage racing, and I love that car. I always kind of thought about Jimmy Clark when I got in that car because I think that was one of the first open-wheel cars he ever raced back when – he was racing, yeah. but uh, wonderful, wonderful car. Well, let's take a look at some of the other roads you've driven down. I would love for you to share a great challenge or even a great failure that you've faced along the way. Now, you chose racing as a career and then broadcasting. Two very challenging careers to last in, but you certainly did in both. But is there one big lesson you learned during an experience that kind of helped maybe someone else out there that's going through a similar challenge? <laughs> God, <laughs> you keep asking the most awkward questions. Um, <laughs> you know, all those cliches like be true to yourself and, and do what you really want to do, they they all sound great. And, and being true to yourself sometimes doesn't really end up being the best for you. Mm. And um, you are kind of led around by the world that tends to steer you. Circumstances, luck... Being in the right place at the right time is absolutely one of the key ingredients to be successful. But you have no control over being in the right place at the right time <laughs> or, or very little control over it. Sure. Certainly not as much control over it as you would like to have. But to me, um, it is, you know, being in the right place at the right time and the old cliche, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I mean, it is just, Incredibly important. So yes. I think Jackie Stewart was a, a great example of somebody who did have complete control of, control of his life. And right on the drop of the first flag in his first race, he made sure that he had the right contacts and that he only, that he only dealt with and uh, befriended and... Um, the right people. Mm-hmm. I mean, just right from the word go, Jackie was tremendous at at um, making sure that his path went where he wanted it to go. And of course, nobody could have been more successful than he. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with three world with three world championships. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, I've always said yeah. we're the culmination of the people we surround ourselves with, and it is important. And you know, my mom used to say. Hang around with the right people, not the wrong people. And mom's always yeah. right. <laughs> so she was she was dead right on that. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about a career aha moment. Now you transferred from racing into broadcasting. Maybe that was your big career aha moment. But is there one that stands out you could share with us? The the change from racing to broadcasting was very gradual. In as much as I was still I was still. Uh, you know, racing for a long time mm-hmm. after I went into broadcasting. When I first um, started broadcast in 1976, 
the following three years, I was I was driving a BMW North America, that BMW 320i program, which was very successful, and we won a lot of races. And I was lucky that I could uh, definitely use some of that momentum. You know, it certainly helped my credibility on CBS sure. um, when they would show a clip before, say, we were doing a NASCAR race from Charlotte or wherever. And when Ken would introduce me, Ken Squire, of course, he was the play play by play. He would introduce me, David Hobbs, the race driver, and they'd have a shot of me. You know, I'd have a video, a very short video, you know, 30 seconds of me winning like the week before somewhere else. And that did a lot to, to help my credibility with the, with the CBS audience at the time. No doubt. My biggest aha moment happened before any of this happened. It was when I was about um, 15. Oh, wow. And a friend of mine got a motorbike for his birthday, a brand new BSA 250 single cylinder motorbike. Mm -hmm. And I was at his house and I went around to see his house. I was on my push push bike, my bicycle. And I went around there and Martin Shinkins, his name was, and he got on that bike, just kick-started it, sat down and drove off. And that to me was a huge aha moment because (laughs) I just thought, oh boy, oh boy, I have got to have a motorbike. Yes. I really have. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, just, and it transformed everything. I used to be quite a good tennis player then. I was a young player and I was doing quite well in the local clubs and things. And um, from then on, I was just totally besotted with vehicular traffic, uh, transport. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a few months after that, I got my first motorbike, which was just a Lambretta scooter, which I used to drive around flat out. And then I soon changed that in for a Triumph Speed Twin, which is a very fast bike for his day. Cause oh, it was yeah. Already about, it was already about 10 years old, but nevertheless, uh, nevertheless it was much, much faster than the scooter, of course. And, yeah. um, and that's what got me into speed. <laughs> no and, kidding. Oh, what fun. What fun. Well, no doubt you have had many proud moments in your very long career, both racing and broadcasting. But is there one that really stands out for you that makes you feel really special? Well, it would have to be that win at the Nürburgring in 1961. I was 22, which then was young for a race driver. Um, Now, 22, you know, people are world champions by the time they're 22 now, but in those days, that was pretty young for a driver because you couldn't race a car until you had a road license. And in the UK, you couldn't get a road license till you were tw- till you were 17. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was none of that. We didn't have all that go-karting. And, and um, you know, now you've got 15-year-olds driving proper race cars. Yes. <laughs> and you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it then because you couldn't race till you got a license. So, I mean, I didn't start any race until I was 19. So I'd only been racing for, um, I was in my third year, and it was in the spring of the year. It was in like April, and uh, me and my friend Bill Pinkney won the now the 1,000 Ks. You know, the Nürburgring was then the most famous and most difficult circuit in the world, still is, um, and we won our class. Uh, so that, to me, was a pretty awesome moment because we had those, in those days, they used to give you the big laurel wreath had the big laurel wreath and playing the national anthem there in the German Eiffel Run Mountains and the clouds and the misty old day. And uh, 
across a huge crowd, about 120,000 people used to go to that race. Uh, and that, that for me was, was a pretty, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, awesome moment no doubt no doubt well you talked about streetcars not being that big a part of your life nor collector cars and i usually ask my guests this question and that is your very first special car or vehicle is that maybe better to ask you the very first really cool race car you got into that you finally sat down and went i have made i'm here well obviously the elite was one of those vehicles Mm -hmm. In the year three, in 1963, I went back to the Nürburgring um, with Richard Atwood driving my car with me. And Richard was in Formula Junior, and he had a Cooper Ford Formula Junior. And as a quid pro quo, he said, okay, well, if you, I'll, I'll drive your elite with you, and then um, I'll let you have a race in my Formula Junior. Nice. And um, I had never driven a single-seater. I'd only ever driven cars with the roof on, you know, the Morris, the Jag, um, and then the Elite. And so I was becoming, already becoming known as a sort of what they call in England a tin-top man. Um, and I drove his car at Alton Park, which was a very twisty circuit up in the north of England. It's still there. And, of course, in those days, I mean, it was just as unsafe as hell. I mean, trees and buildings and it was in an old army camp mm. so there was still building army buildings and nissen huts and things all just standing at the side of the road you know yeah i mean there was a lot of a lot of stuff to hit yeah and um i had raced there in my elite before many on many occasions and in one one weekend i won three races i went to three different classes nice including open sports cars i was racing against 1600 cc like lotus 11s low, lower 1100s uh, which had a bigger engines than me, and B were real pucker sports cars, not not a GT car. Mm-hmm. And I managed to win. It was raining, and I managed to win all three in one day. Whoa! So in the end, um, Richard, having driven with me at the Nurburgring, we arranged for me to drive his Foreman Junior, and the place we chose in the end was Alton Park. Nice. So when I got there, there were two or three specialists from Alton Park. A guy called John Fenning. And another guy called Keith Francis, who used to win everything at Alton Park. So the team I'm with said, well, you know, with a bit of luck, you might come in the top four or five, you know, because there's some really good guys here. Anyway, I won the race easy going away. And um, and I did think then after that, I thought, wow, you know, there's something about these single seaters that just yeah. you can't really beat it because you – you and the machine tend to blend into one mm. far more than you do in a two-seater car. And um, so that was a bit of an eye-opener for me to do my first open-wheel race and win it convincingly yeah. so, um, against cool. some pretty tough opposition. So yeah. that was that was a pretty neat day. Oh, yeah. no doubt. No neat. doubt. Very, 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 very special. Well, let's talk about today and tomorrow. What is on the future for David Hobbs? Do you have some plans into this new year? Well, the biggest plan is, obviously, uh, I suppose, <laughs> how to face retirement. My, he was a worried look on the face. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with yourself? Yeah. Well, this, this year is going to be very busy because in March – at the Amelia Island Concorde d'Elegance, which is obviously on Amelia Island, which is just outside Jacksonville in Florida, 
I am launching my book, which I've been writing for the last 10 years with the help of people like Bob Varsha and um, Andrew Marriott, um, who is an English writer. And uh, it will finally see the light of day All right. at Amelia Island uh, on March the 11th and 12th. How exciting. And, um, so that's when the book's going to be launched. And so I shall be in full book marketing mode yes. for the rest of the year after that. Um, we're doing the final editing now and um, laying out and all that of the book, mm-hmm. and that will be done in the next couple of weeks. Oh, and, how um, exciting! It'll be launched at Amelia, and um, then immediately after Amelia, and I mean immediately, like the day after, the Monday and Tuesday after, that's the um, uh, Motorsports Hall of Fame of America uh, have their annual um, do down in uh, Daytona. And I have been the MC ever since I was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009. They have used me as their MC. And so I will try and sell some books at the Hall of Fame. Yep. The week after that, well, the day after that, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is a Sebring 12 hour, which luckily is only, you know, 100 miles from Daytona. Mm-hmm. And then the week after that, I should be getting on the plane and going to Britain. And uh, the book is going to be launched at the RAC Club in London on uh, March the 22nd. Um, So once March comes around, I'm going to be pretty busy um, dashing around here and uh, and the UK um, trying to sell my book. Um, Wow. This is very exciting. March will roar in like a lion for you. This is cool. It certainly will. What is the title of your book? It's called Hobbo. And uh, which is my nickname has been my nickname ever since I was at school. Yes, and so uh, uh, yeah, it's called Hobbo, and it's coming out um, on uh, March 11th. Oh, how exciting! I'm so excited for yeah. you and Bill Warner. Yeah, but, Go ahead. Yep, yeah, oh. Bill. Bill, it's, it's going to be introduced at Bill's concourse. Yep, Bill Warner uh, was the guest Bill, here on Cars. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, of course, you know, has just had a big operation, a major yes. operation, yes. seven hour up, and. Uh, he is recovering well. I spoke to him the day before yesterday. Yep. And he sounds remarkably chipper for somebody who was under the knife for that <laughs> length of time. Yes. But, um, yeah, and he'll be there um, uh, running on all eight again, he hopes. And um, I hope too. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be a big day. No doubt. Big weekend. We all wish Bill quite well. Great guy, tough guy. So, no doubt he'll be up yep. and running with a wonderful event. So, congratulations to you for that book. I can't wait to let my listeners know about it. Very, very exciting. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, David. Kind of a funny question, but we'll see how you answer this one. If David Hobbs was a vehicle, what would he be and why? Well, it'd probably be uh, Aston Martin DB9. Ooh, nice. Uh, And it'd be a DB9 because it is one of the most uh, beautiful and attractive cars you'll ever see. Uh, I mean, the lines are just absolutely gorgeous. Great performance. Um, I'll never be able to afford one, but if I was going to be a car, I think a DB9 would probably be a pretty good, uh, pretty good way to go. I think so. Very nice. Well, David, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. 
They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them market Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garages built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. All right, David, we are back, and we're entering the last lap. You've seen many of those. The white flag's out, and you know what that means. Time to put our foot into it. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice or racing advice you've ever received? Well, I think some of the best advice I ever had was from Sterling Moss 50 years ago, who told me to uh, try and plot my own course and, and just keep and keep Keep at it. Relentlessly keep at it. Yep. Never, ever give up. And would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your many successes over the years? Well, I would like to say it's not drinking, but that's not one of them. Uh, (laughs) I've always tried to, but apart from, uh, I've never smoked and I've always tried to keep fit. Used to jog a lot, don't now. The old knees aren't up to it anymore, but um, I think you want to try and keep yourself in good personal uh, health. Yes, absolutely important. Do you have a resource that you think our listeners would enjoy that you go to often? I can't say that I do, really. I'm letting your listeners down a lot here. I don't have too many of these uh, great resources that I study. I just look at myself, my parents, who were great models, very good parents. And, of course, I've always been supported by my wife, Margaret, Mm. who I was going out with for five years before we got married, and uh, we're still married 57 years later. Well, congratulations. She was giving you a nice long test drive to make sure that uh, you were a good fit, that's for sure. But obviously, you guys (laughs) have been. That's awesome. Now, if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry or racing who's living or deceased, who would that person be? Well, I drove for him once many, many, many years ago, uh, but I don't think you'll find anybody in the automotive world much better placed to give advice, and that would be Roger Penske. Ah, yes. Would love to have him on this show as well. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing man, for sure. Well, you talked about your new book coming out, 
But is there another book you could tell our listeners about that you've read recently that you really enjoyed? Well, I'm afraid I'm a novel reader. Um, That's okay. I'm not. I'm not much for reading. Um, I must say that I like the Jack Reacher novels very, very much indeed. Ah, yes. I like him, and I like John Sanderson. Uh, I think John it does write, write, write some great books. Yes, um, and he sets them in Minneapolis, and they really are just wonderful to read. Great dialogue. Yeah. Great books for sure. Well, listeners, I'll remind you, you can find all these great resources that David's been so kind to share on his show notes page. Just go to carsyeah.com, type in David Hobbs, and you'll find those there. And of course, when his book comes out, we'll put that on his show notes page so you can get yourself a copy. I can't wait to get my copy either. Going to be fantastic. All right, David, we are up to the checkered flag. You've seen many of these as well. And this last question can be a bit of a doozy. You might have already answered this question. Today, I'm going to buy you any cool collector car in the world. You're finally going to have that awesome, fun car in the garage. Don't worry about the price because I'm buying today. So what's it going to be and why? Well, it's going to be a Bugatti. Ooh. And I... I can't tell you the model number, but it's that incredibly swoopy Bugatti, which comes on Masterpiece Theatre <laughs> at the beginning of the show, and it's owned by the great um, fashion uh, owner, um, whose name just escaped. Ah, uh, I know the car I you're think, talking about. You're talking about I the Bugatti Atlantique, owned by yeah, that's the guy with I the am. polo ponies. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the guy with the bowl, the bowl open is exactly. Ralph Lauren, uh, yes. That, that, that to me, yeah, Ralph Lauren. That, to me, is the most gorgeous-looking car, and I would definitely like Ralph Lauren. Oh, you're making it hard for me, buddy. I'm going to have to pry yeah, that out of his, make, <laughs> out of his hand. You're going to have to dig deep in your savings. Uh, yeah, very, very deep, one. for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes, that's a beautiful car. I've had the pleasure of seeing that car on the lawn at Pebble Beach, and it is a work of art. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, I'll get to work on that for you, David. I'd be happy to drive that down to Florida for you and enjoy some of that sunshine. Thank you very you much. guys, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Well, David, you have taken us on an awesome ride today. I knew you would. I've really enjoyed this time I've been able to spend with you, and I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Cars Yow listeners and with me. Is there one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer us before you drive off into the sunset in that Bugatti Atlantic? Well, as I think I said before, you've got to be true to yourself and you have to be absolutely consistent and you have to be very honest with yourself and also try and strive for everything that you can possibly achieve. Absolutely. And I guess... Do not try and overachieve because, you know, it only happens to very few people. But if you achieve half of what you really wanted, you'll probably find you you had a pretty happy life. I think so. And what's the best way for our listeners to follow along with what you're doing? Do you have a website or is there a way people can learn more about you? I don't have a website. I'm on Twitter. Twitter. Okay. At Mr. David David Hobbs. I don't do Facebook, um, but I'm seriously considering going on Facebook. But... um, and of course, there's uh, the dealership David Hobbs Honda in um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is run by my eldest son Greg. There you go. That has a website. Absolutely, and, uh, you can follow. Well, now yeah. that you'll have your book out, maybe you need to start going on Facebook and Instagram to promote that book. I think you're right. Okay, yeah. there you go. Well, listeners, again, yeah. uh, you can find everything David has shared here on the Cars yeah website at carsyeah.com. Just type David Hobbs in there, and you'll find it. 
Hey, David, thank you for taking some time out of your morning with me today and being so generous with your time and expertise. This has been a real thrill for me. I've followed you for so, so long. Until you and I talk again or I meet you at Amelia Island, I'll see you down the road. Thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to talk to you as well and all your guests. You're welcome. You take care. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!